the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people persecute you, revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the good and on the, on the evil and on the good and on the just, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, I tell you, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
Why are you worried about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we weigh? Where? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And one seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that produces good fruit, that does not produce good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your precious word that gives life to our souls. Father, I just ask, O oh God, that these words of life, O oh God, would penetrate deep into our hearts and that we be astounded by the work and person of Jesus Christ. God, I've written words, God, our reflections on this Sermon of the Mount, and I pray, O oh God, as we think through these scriptures, that you would speak to our hearts. Help us now, God, to sit and tremble at your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, church, I uh, chose to begin the Sermon of the Mount this way, our introductory to this entire series, often called the greatest sermon ever preached, because I wanted you to hear it and feel it the way that Jesus' original hearers would have felt it and heard it from him, without any notes and with Jesus just speaking. You know, for those of you who've never been here before, I hope that this will probably be the most significant 18 minutes of your life. No. Some of the most profound words ever written. You know, I remember the story actually of a pastor who was speaking and said that when he began this sermon, he actually got up and he just simply recited the Sermon on the Mount and then he sat down. And then some old ladies went up to him afterwards and said, Pastor, that was the best sermon you ever preached. <laughs> Little did they know that it was actually Jesus' words. I hope at least you know enough to know that these, those weren't my words, but the profound words there were the words of Jesus Christ himself. You know, in today's world, we are largely unimpressed by people who get up to read and give speeches, let alone people who read God's Word. And part of the reason for that is here in Canada, we are about 99%, according to the UN, literate. 
which means that when you have 100 people in the room, at least 99 of them will be able to get up and read something if you ask them to do it. <clears throat> but with what Jesus was doing, teaching, reciting scripture without any notes whatsoever, that was truly remarkable, especially in today's age where we don't memorize anything because you just Google it instead. Now, why, do you, why do you bother to fill up your brain with memorization when you can fill it with entertainment, right? We don't, we don't memorize, and therefore we actually don't meditate on anything, and that's why our culture has actually lost its ability to think. You know, as we as Christians are actually commanded to meditate on God's Word, we are to be a memorizing people. We internalize the Word of God, and we are to think about it, turn it over in our minds and our hearts day and night, because Christianity is not just about information. It's about transformation. You can never be transformed by something that is not inside of you. You know, the most dangerous type of famine in this world is not a lack of food, but the Bible tells us that it's actually a lack of the Word of God. And when the Word of God is missing, People will starve to death spiritually and die a death that is far worse than simply malnutrition. You know, we are moved when we hear the scriptures being recited, especially long passages, simply because I think we see and we can feel the profound effect that it has on another person. You know that nobody commits scripture to memory without valuing it, treasuring it, and putting hours you know, into it. And obviously it must mean something very much to them. Our world is so keen and so interested in seeing people, seeing Christians and seeing those who have things that they so value that they're willing to pour all their time and their energy and their very lives into it. You know, there's an old saying that says, watch, set a man on fire and people will come to watch him burn. I think the thing is absolutely true when it comes to God. You set a person on fire for God and people will come from everywhere to see God in the fire, as in the burning bush. And they look at you and say, why are you not consumed? This is an amazing sight. I've never seen anything like this before. You know, I think that this world is so full of darkness, so full of relative truth, that people are just looking everywhere for somewhere where they can anchor their souls, looking for some hope in life, some solid ground to be able to stand on amidst the shifting changes and tides of our culture. I think ultimately what we long for is the truth of Jesus Christ. And we are so blessed when we see that burning in his people. You know, this Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most well-known sermon in the entire world, cross religions and cross cultures. You know, most Canadians can actually recite, Our Father who art in heaven, right? If you look at other parts of the world, for instance, for example, like Hindus, Hindu swamis actually study the Sermon on the Mount and they comment on it. The Buddhist leader, the Dalai Lama, has written a commentary on the Sermon of the Mount. Gandhi himself loved it so much that he built his entire philosophy of nonviolence and politics based off of the Sermon on the Mount and a few other things he had cobbled together. In fact, Gandhi loved it so much that when he was working on a peace treaty with Lord Irwin of England, between his country and England, he was asked by Lord Irwin, tell me what you consider to be the solution to the problems of your country and mind. And Gandhi opened up Matthew chapter 5 and said, when your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in this Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems, not only of our countries, but those of the entire world. 
that's the effect of this sermon around the globe. Now, many things in this sermon, I would say, resonate with our culture, and we get that. We hate hypocrisy in our culture. We agree that life is more than food and clothing. And when people judge us, we're very quick to say stuff like, judge not that you be not judged. But the truth is, many things that Jesus teaches actually in this sermon uh, would also condemn our culture, and we would find very uncomfortable. In fact, every culture in the world would find discomfort and comfort while looking at the Sermon on the Mount, because no culture is equivalent to the culture of the kingdom of God, the culture that he wants to have for us. All of us fall short in some way. For example, when you look at our culture, Jesus' prohibition, for instance, on divorce would be very unwelcome. Or Jesus, for example, explanations about issues of the heart, issues of lust, and all these internal matters and how those are condemnable before God make us very, very uncomfortable. You know, Jesus' final declaration, in fact, that those who don't listen to his word are really like foolish men who build their houses on sand, that sounds bigoted and very exclusive in our culture. What gives your faith the right to have this exclusive you know, claim on the truth. Aren't all religions just some sort of, have all some sort of form of the truth? Jesus doesn't leave that option. See, just because Jesus is exclusive and his teaching is narrow doesn't mean that it's not true. And if Jesus is actually a king, we actually have no choice but to respond to this cutting sermon. Now, I know that given that many non-Christians have also tried to interpret the Sermon on the Mount and offer all sorts of commentary on the text, the question for us really is, what is this sermon actually about? Let me begin first by telling you what this sermon is not about, okay? Number one, this sermon is not about being a better you apart from God. It's not some sort of secret to self-actualization, growing your business, or becoming a better you. Sure, okay, we're fascinated by words like, Love your enemies, don't worry about food or clothing, turn the other cheek. Very, very common sayings. But all these statements, if you look at them, are actually all grounded in actually knowing God. Love your enemies. Why? So that you can be like sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why should you not worry about food or clothing? Why? Because you have a heavenly Father who provides you all these things. He feeds birds. Don't you think he'll feed you? Why should you love your enemies? So that you could be like your father who sent his very own son to die on the cross for his enemies so that he could save them. See, all the statements given in the Sermon on the Mount actually don't make any sense as you, unless you understand that what grounds them is the relationship between the disciple and God. See, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you can't read this sermon without referencing our amazing God. You read about a God who knows our needs before we ask. You read about a God who feeds the birds of the air and he clothes the lilies of the field. You read about a God who forgives people's sins and does not repay us according to what we have done. You know, everything in this sermon is inextricably tied to God, so you can't try to interpret this sermon or even think that you understand it without reference to God. That's the way Jesus understood his very own sermon, okay? The second thing that you need to know about the Sermon on the Mount is this. It's not a checklist for being a good Christian or the way to earn yourself a place in the kingdom of God. Jesus points this out. For example, he says that in God's eyes, sinning in your heart, whether it's with lust or having anger, all these things, 
is a condemnable offense. And refusing to forgive, even though maybe you never hurt anybody, you might never have killed anybody, refusing to forgive, he says, falls far short of God's standard of perfection. A God who forgives you, even when you didn't know him. See, according to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, all the cultures in this world and all the people have a different standard of what they think is righteous. And if you ask people, do you think you're a good person? Most will tell you, yes, I think I'm a good person. I probably will go to heaven. But the difficulty, of course, is which culture is right? Whose opinion is right? Is mine right? Is my Asian culture and background for what makes a good son good? Or is it another culture's? You know, what we see clearly here in the Sermon on the Mount is that no culture, no person's claims to what they think is the right standard are actually right. The only standard that is right is God's, and His standard is perfection, and everyone falls short of that. So what that tells us is that you and I are actually in trouble. No one would qualify if they relied on the Sermon on the Mount or even trying to live up to God's standards to get into the kingdom of heaven. So you can't do it. Don't think the Sermon on the Mount is the way into the kingdom. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? Let me make this clear here. The Sermon is a call for those who are in the kingdom to live according to the ethic of the kingdom so that the world might actually see the invisible kingdom of God and give glory to Him and be His followers as well. That's the point of it. So we strive to live out this sermon. Why? Because we love Jesus for what he has already done for us and it's our heart's joy and desire to follow him and to look like our master in every single way. You know, there are like 50-something imperatives in this sermon. Yes, it's full of commands, but at the same time, if you look at all the other verbs, there are over 300 other verbs in here and many of them are descriptive. In fact, I would say that as much as disciples are commanded here in the Sermon on the Mount, they're actually more often described. Described not in terms of physical characteristics, but the characteristics of those who are in the kingdom of God, what Christians should look like. In fact, if, I, if you were to ask me to loosely sort of outline this sermon, I would say that chapter 5 is about how Christians uh, relate to the world and also how Christians relate to the law of God. And then you look at chapter 6, and I would say it's about how Christians relate to their heavenly Father. And then chapter 7, it's about how Christians relate then to judgment. Now that's very loose, but I think it's helpful because a lot of it is descriptive, how Christians relate to different things in this world. Jesus wants to paint pictures for us. Overall, this sermon is actually directly and primarily given to disciples. You know, I didn't read the first two verses, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, but they go like this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... So when you look at those two verses, you realize Jesus going up to the mountain and he sits down. In their culture, a rabbi sitting down was an indication that a formal lecture, a sermon was about to start, and everyone needed to take out their pens and their notebooks and pay attention to what was going to happen. So he does this. Now, I'd like to suggest there are four things, I think, that we can take away from the Sermon of the Mount as a whole, from Jesus formally teaching and instructing his disciples. Number one, the Sermon of the Mount is meant to be memorized. Okay? When, when I was memorizing the Sermon on the Mount, 
I actually couldn't help but notice how many memory aids there are in this. And for those of you maybe who have memorized large amounts of something or tried to put things into your mind, uh, you understand how important it is to actually have memory aids. So for example, the way the sermon is structured, you realize there's contrasting images all throughout it. There's light, there's dark, there's healthy, there's disease, there's good, there's bad, all these different things. That makes it very memorable. There are also things like chiastic sequences. You know, or uh, what that means is there are sequences of things, basically, or events that occur in reverse order, okay? So it's uncommon in North American uh, culture, but in Eastern culture, it's a very commonly used memory aid. So, for example, when he says he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and then on the just, sends rain on the just, and then on the unjust, right? That's an example of a chiastic structure, right? Down, up, up, down, all throughout the sermon as well. There are also a lot of repeated phrases, right? Like you might have heard me say, and your father who sees in secret will reward you over and over again. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward three times over and over again. But I say to you, but I say to you, again, you have heard it said, this sermon was designed for Jesus' disciples to memorize it. You know, Jesus honestly wanted them to be able to take this away and not just forget it, but to remember his teaching and to put it deeply into their hearts. So he wanted his followers, you see, to nourish themselves on his word. And that's why he made it, as a master teacher, incredibly memorable. The second thing that I want you to know about the Sermon on the Mount is that it is meant to be lived. Now, I pointed out a number of the imperatives that are given there. Love, pray, give, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, and so on and so on. And in addition to this, Jesus uses very, very powerful images that grasp the mind and make it very hard to forget, right? He says things like a judge and a jail, and then he gives you the picture of wolves in sheep's clothing. And that's an expression we use in our culture, and it sticks to this day. He talks about healthy and diseased trees, and he talks about two kinds of houses, right? One which is a poor construction project, and the other one that was actually built on concrete. So, I mean, you have all these different things. You know, it's so important how images actually function, and we actually understand this. You know, I remember the story of uh, J.C. Good, who is now a spokeswoman for stopping people from texting while they are driving. And when teens actually go to her speeches and they see her disfigured face and her mangled arm, they are actually often overcome by the sight of it and they're reduced to tears. And then when J.C. gets up and starts speaking, uh, they're, they're, they're absolutely mortified by the fact that they texted and drove. See, you know, you can tell kids all the time don't text and drive. Don't text and drive. Yeah, 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 mom and dad, that's fine. I know what I'm doing. You're just old. You don't know how to use a phone and drive at the same time. But the deal is, you can tell them all you want. But you know what's far more effective than telling them? It's giving them a picture, giving them an image. When they see that mangled arm and the half face that is no longer able to move because the nerves are gone, that'll change you when you see it face to face. I think that's what Jesus does by giving all these images. He wants to fill your mind with a picture of what is right and what is wrong so that you can remember it. See, images actually shape your heart in ways that commandments cannot. And what Jesus wants to do here is he not only wants people to do things, but he wants them to see the world with the same transformed heart of God that he wants for everyone. 
So you see, religion is often just skin deep and very much concerned with outward rituals. Are you standing in the right place? Did you light the right candle or so? Did you kneel five times a day? All these outward things. But true Christianity, the Christianity of Jesus, it's not about those outward things, but it's actually heart deep. It's, not a, it's about who you are before God. Right? It's about your character, who you are when no one is looking. It's about following God's, the life of God. See, the Sermon on the Mount is actually terrifying if you hear it in its entirety because you realize that it forces you to examine who you are when nobody is looking. Who are you when no one sees? Is that person pleasing to God? You know, you're not a good person just because you're not arrested. You know, most of us who are adults understand that when we do something wrong, what's your first reaction or your instinct? What is the likelihood of me getting caught? How much shame will it bring on me if I actually fess up to what I've done? If I didn't say anything, could I get away with it? How big is it? How likely am I to get arrested? You know, all these things actually subconsciously go through your mind. And you choose to do what you do many times, not based off of what you're absolutely convicted is right and wrong, but based on how you want to avoid punishment for yourself or letting people know what's really inside your heart. You're not as good, see, if you're willing to admit, you're not as good as you actually seem. And Jesus cuts right into the heart by saying, God knows that. It's about who you are on the inside and you know it as well. And the question is, if who you are on the inside was put before God, the God who sees everything, would you pass? Would you be able to enter heaven based on judging yourself, even on what you know about yourself? Do you want to be blessed and internalize and live the Sermon on the Mount, commit it to heart? You know, the third thing I want to say about this is that the Sermon on the Mount frees you to live life as God intended. See, how is it that you can turn the other cheek when someone insults you? How is it that you can live in this world knowing how expensive Vancouver is to live in and not be anxious about how you're going to make it. You might have had money, a nice house when you were younger, but because life was rough later, you don't have any of these things. You're going to retire, or you should be retired, but you don't have money for that. How are you supposed to survive? And Jesus, without, you know, without any qualifications, whatever, just looks at everyone and says, don't be anxious. You know why? Don't look at your bank account. Look at the birds. Not the bank. Look at the birds. Birds are fed, you follow him, he'll feed you. That's the proof. And that only works if you live in a world in which there is a God who is for you and not against you. See, only if you have God as your father and your defender and your safety net can you actually live a life that's free of anxiety. So even if they kill you, they're just sending you home to heaven. You know, Alex Honnold, I love watching him just because I have an interest in rock climbing. I can't do it myself. I'm not that strong. But he was famous for climbing Yosemite National Park's uh, uh, granite mountain, 3,000 feet basically of vertical cliff called El Capitan. And he did this actually first person without any ropes. Now, that was absolutely amazing to see. But Alex actually said in his interviews after he did that, that his favorite type of climbing was not free climbing like that without ropes, but that his favorite type of climbing was with ropes. And then he explained why. He said that when you're climbing, 
with ropes, you can actually attempt to do very hard things, very difficult maneuvers that you would never dare do if you have no ropes. So he said actually climbing with ropes allows you to push yourself to the very edge where you could never go without ropes because you know that if you fall, you are anchored into the solid rock wall. I remember watching that and thinking to myself, I'm like, that's exactly it. That's exactly what Christianity is as well. See, when you're a Christian, you're like climbing through the difficulties of life, but you have safety and security because you're anchored into the wall. And you can do things that other people could never do. You can do, as Jesus says in this sermon, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. You can impoverish yourself. Why? Because you know that you have a safety net. Even if you lose everything that you have and you go all out in terms of living good, doing works for other people, sacrificing so that others may have, hear the gospel and serving the poor, you go all out, you have a safety net. You will never fail. And that anchor that's driven into the rock will never come out. Not because of the strength of your anchor, but because of the strength of who your anchor is. Jesus Christ. More sure than the stock market is, all your retirement funds and even your health. Jesus is way better than that. See, this is why you can't truly embrace the Sermon on the Mount if you're not a disciple of Jesus. You just can't. You can't do it. Jesus doesn't assume that you can either. Number four. Yes. The Sermon on the Mount is the key to evangelism or talking to people about Jesus. See, you know what's most attractive to non-Christians? I hear it all the time from people are like, how do you make your church grow? And I said, you know what you need? I were talking to a young man. He says, I've got a cool band. I have my cool band. People will come to my church. I'm like, yeah, but you might just have rockers. And then you might be a group of rockers who sometimes do Christianity. Right? So I, I don't, that's not how you make a church grow. Well, how does Jesus say that his church will grow? You know what's most attractive to non-Christians? According to Jesus here, it's Christians who live out the Sermon on the Mount. And they let their light shine before other people so that they see their good works and then actually praise and give glory to their Father who's in heaven. That's how it works. It's not because you're cool. It's because God is great. And people see God shining through you and they say, I want that. You're not that important. See, how do you reach people for Jesus? It's very clear. You live the sermon. Live according to the ethic of the kingdom. And people will be drawn to him. You know, I honestly suspect that's actually how many people in here, many of you who became Christians, came to know Jesus, right? It wasn't because of some intellectual argument. You saw someone who was smarter than you and you said, I want to be smart like them. But because actually they were incredibly loving and kind towards you. And the way that they lived was moving to your soul. You know, there's many people here, um, I would say, who believe that they're good and they'll never be convinced by me just simply getting up there and having an intellectual discussion with them. But I do know that many people looking at very simple, honest, loving, self-sacrificial Christians and without them even saying a word, when they look at those lives of love that actually dwarfs their own, I think they're actually convicted maybe of their own lack of goodness and they turn to God and they realize they're not what they should be. You know, I read the story about Brian Ivey, who was the young director of a film called The Dropbox. 
And uh, it's, uh, he had read about this Korean pastor named Lee Jong-rak who had started a drop box at his church in 2009 to collect babies that were being abandoned. So these unwanted mothers of unwanted babies or who were going to kill them or, or, give them, or, or just like dispose of them, so so many were being killed in Korea, would actually have an alternative to go and put this baby in the box. An alarm would sound and Pastor Lee would go and he would rescue the babies from the box and he would bring them up in the church. So that at any one time, he could have up to 13 infants in his house that he and his wife were caring for. You think you've got problems, right, with sleep for your little two-year-old. You know, as a result of living with this pastor, this director, Brian Ivey, who was not a Christian, watching him care for them, was so moved by it that he was actually converted and became a Christian himself as he filmed this documentary. You know, Pastor Lee and his wife, over the last number of years, have saved over 600 children. Just the two of them and handing them off to other Christians in their church and finding them suitable homes. That's being salt and light. You know, friends, if our salvation was dependent on how well we live the Sermon on the Mount, nobody would be in heaven, right? The Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody can keep their mind perfectly pure. Nobody, all of us have struggled with things like anger and unforgiveness. All of us have done things that we wish that we could never had done and that we wish we could change the past. No one's perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And that's why we need the grace and the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, do you know why the sermon actually begins with these words? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It starts like that because only people who realize that they're actually spiritually poor before God and need Him will be able to honor God by living out the Sermon on the Mount in humble dependence on God's grace to give them the ability to do what they could never do on their own. See, if you think that you're already good, what you will do is you will pick and choose different things from the Sermon on the Mount, and then you will assemble it into your own form, your own sort of ladder. And you will take that ladder, and then you will climb this self-justifying ladder of morality, and you will attempt to get to God and say, God, look at me. You and I are in the same field. You are good. I am good. What do you think? That's what you will do if you think that you're good. It's nothing but a ladder. But the truth is, that ladder will actually collapse back on you. And the other thing is that ladder is not long enough to reach God. You will never get there on your own. But if you repent and believe that Jesus Christ, death on the cross, alone can save you from your sins, you don't need that ladder. You don't need to climb it because Jesus did it for you. And the steps that you do take to follow Jesus and to emulate him are not because you hope to earn the kingdom for yourself, but because you do so out of a love and imitation of a master who did it all for you. That's the entire difference, totally different from the religions of this world. See, the sermon says basically the king has arrived and the question is, will you submit to the authority of the king? This is not advice. The sermon on the mount demands a response because it's the word of the king. See, if you're not a follower of Jesus here, I would seriously urge you to consider these words here and come back and work with us as we go through the Sermon on the Mount and consider Jesus' words and become his follower. You know, to lay down your pride and surrender your control over your life, throwing away your anxiety and fear on him and let him change you from the inside out to experience his grace and forgiveness hope that you could never have imagined for yourself. You know, if that's you, I don't want you to leave this place without talking to somebody more about Jesus, whether it's myself or anyone who's sitting here, or to come back and as we work through this sermon, be encounter the words of Jesus 
and be transformed. You know, but if you're a believer here, I just want to ask, let me ask, have you read the Sermon on the Mount? Have you thought about it before? Do you see the incredible demands that it makes, but it also how it cuts deeply into the heart and challenges you to think, am I living the way that God wants me to live? He calls to me and wants me to live like Him so that the world might see that He is God. Or are you like a diseased tree that Jesus will look at one day and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. You know, or are you one of those who have found the Sermon of the Light to be your absolute delight in the morning? You know many sections of it. You love it and quote it. And your earnest joy is not just seek the kingdom of God, but to enter it one day and see your master face to face. And in that day, your joy, your joy will be absolutely complete. Friends, that's the heart of a Christian. You know, we're going to be walking through the Sermon on the Mount over the next few weeks. And it's going to be my prayer as we go through this that God would absolutely transform our church through this. You know, I would challenge all of you who are here to read the Sermon on the Mount regularly over the next little while and to memorize portions of it and to put it into your soul and allow those portions to challenge and change and shape you that you might grow into more Christ-likeness so that the world might see our God and turn to Him and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us, God, and for giving us this precious Sermon on the Mount that is both frightening, God, and exhilarating as we think of, God, the picture and the life that you have for us. God, we know that Jesus died on the cross to help us live it. We are not perfect, and we will never be, but the Son of God died on that cross to secure our eternity for us and to tear from us our pride and to give us humility. Father, there is only one rock that we can build our lives on, and that is Jesus Christ. And so I ask, God, that the truth about Jesus, O oh God, the truth about His Word, O oh God, will be stamped deep on our hearts and that we will live our lives loving You and finding joy even as we suffer for the sake of your name and going all out in terms of how we live with reckless abandon for the kingdom of God. Teach us not to be anxious, but to trust you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.